This episode of The Dig is brought to you by our listeners who support us at patreon.com and by Verso Books, which has loads of great left-wing titles, perfect for Dig listeners like you. Looking to read more radical books this year? The Verso Book Club is a monthly subscription that gets you every single ebook that Verso publishes each month, plus one or more print books in the mail. If you join in January, you'll choose between Coronavirus Criminals and Pandemic Profiteers, Accountability for Those Who Caused the Crisis by John Nichols, A Furious Denunciation of America's Coronavirus Criminals, and Britain's Empire, Resistance, Repression, and Revolt by Richard Gott, A Magisterial History of the Foundation of the British Empire, and The Forgotten Story of Resistance to Its Formation. And if you join at the comrade level, you'll also get Culture and Politics, Class, Writing, Socialism by Raymond Williams, and Imperium, Structures and Affects of Political Bodies by Frédéric Lordon. If you're a book club member, you also get 50% off everything on the Verso site as long as you subscribe. Check out the Verso Book Club's monthly picks at versobooks.com. Welcome to The Dig, a podcast from Jacobin Magazine. My name is Daniel Denver, and I'm broadcasting from Providence, Rhode Island. Russians are not the only people subjected to propaganda about the crisis in Ukraine. In the mainstream U.S. press, the bias is more subtle and perhaps largely unintentional. Many American reporters covering the crisis reflexively take on the viewpoint of American empire. Not because anyone orders them to do so, but rather because deeply rooted ideology makes such a viewpoint appear to be normal and objective, even to the very people who are actively constructing it. The American press should cover Russia and Putin skeptically. There is, obviously, quite a lot to be skeptical about. But good journalism would apply that very same skeptical frame to the U.S. and to NATO and to their motivations. A Russian invasion of Ukraine would be really bad for the world, and for Ukraine in particular. But is an invasion even likely? The Ukrainian government doesn't seem to think so. A lot is lost in this coverage that always frames Putin as the aggressor, and the U.S. and NATO as being forced by Putin to react defensively including the long history of post-Soviet NATO expansion and other actions taken by the U.S. in making today's post-Soviet crises. Often, our coverage seems a lot like Russian state media, just in reverse. Also lost in this coverage are Ukraine and Ukrainians, what they think about what's going on and what they want for their country, and how the country's history over the past three decades has led us to this moment. Today, my guest is Ukrainian sociologist Volodymyr Ishchenko. His work, which I will link to in the show notes, is really quite brilliant. Before we get started, I want to signpost a bit of recent Ukrainian history that we discuss so that you don't get lost if you haven't been following that history closely. President Viktor Yanukovych had been pursuing an association agreement with the European Union. Under Russian pressure, Yanukovych pulled away from that agreement in November 2013, sparking protests. In December 2013, the protests grew in number after a violent police crackdown and forced Yanukovych to flee the country. The result was a secessionist uprising in the eastern Donbass region, backed by Russia, and Russia's seizure and annexation of Crimea. 
The conflict in Donbass continues today, with more than 13,000 dead. We get into a lot more detail in the interview, but those are some important historical events you need as context. I also want to thank Sophie Pinkham and Tony Wood for suggesting that I reach out to Volodymyr. And if you want more of the history of Russia that we touch on in this interview, I recommend that you listen to my interview with Tony Wood, and I will post a link to that in the show notes as well. We have so many great interviews coming up. Next week is Femi Taiwo hosting an interview with Dongo Sambasila and Daniela Gabor on the centrality of monetary policy in colonial and neocolonial domination, particularly in West Africa. That was going to be this week, but I bumped it for today's Ukraine episode. We've also got, in no particular order because I don't know quite when anything will be released, Raj Patel and Rupa Maria on inflamed deep medicine in the anatomy of injustice, Veronica Gago on Argentine feminism and neoliberalism from below, Kim Phillips-Fine on Invisible Hands, The Businessman's Crusade Against the New Deal, Giomar and Mariam Kaba on Police, Destin Jenkins on The Bonds of Inequality, Debt and the Making of the American City, Brenna Bandar on The Colonial Lives of Property, and so much more after that. If you depend on The Dig for these sorts of in-depth interviews on politics, economics, and history all over the world, please take a quick moment to make a contribution at patreon.com slash the dig. This podcast is overwhelmingly a listener-supported one. It's the reason I can do this for a living and pay everyone who helps put these episodes out, and it's why we don't have to paywall any of our episodes to raise money, because those of you who can afford to contribute do so. We also have books, coffee mugs, and tote bags to send you in the mail. That's P-A-T-R-E-O-N dot com slash the dig. Please make a contribution if you can. You also get our weekly newsletter by email if you make a contribution, which is really, really good. Okay, here's Vladimir Ischenko. Vladimir Ischenko is a research associate at the Institute of East European Studies at the Free University in Berlin. His research focuses on protests and social movements, revolutions, radical right and left politics, nationalism, and civil society. His work and interviews on contemporary Ukrainian politics, the Euromaidan uprising, and the following war in 2013-14 have been published in Post-Soviet Affairs, Globalizations, New Left Review, The Guardian, and Jacobin. He is working on a collective book manuscript, The Maidan Uprising, Mobilization, Radicalization, and Revolution in Ukraine, 2013-2014. And please do pardon my mispronunciation of all things Ukrainian. Vladimir Eschenko, welcome to The Dig. Yeah, thank you. Good evening. Is Russia preparing to invade Ukraine, or is the West hyping the prospect of an invasion for its own purposes? What... Are Putin's possible aims? What are those of the United States and the EU? What, in short, is going on right now? Look, I really hate these speculations, and there have been uh, like a lot of them in the, at least in the last three months, but even longer, of course. And many people turned into Putin experts, and there are other people who have their cliches about the U.S. policies. I mean, I, I'm skeptical to any. Um, kind of like cliche style and uh, one factor explanation for what's what's going on and at least i would say that there are at least two autonomous processes 
One thing is what Russia is doing, is what, what, what they're really doing, and with uh, moving their uh, military and with uh, stating these demands to the NATO, and that, that's uh, partially the fact. But there is also another autonomous process, is the perception and media representation and the official representation in the Western countries, primarily in the US, in the UK, and the, the kind of like a different uh, representations in uh, Germany, France, uh, and other Euro- European Union countries. And it, it may seem like, like that US may be reacting to what Russia is doing and saying that it's, uh, it's going to be an, an imminent invasion and, uh, and so on. But it's, it's more like independent from, from that. And it's, we should analyze both what's going on from the Russian side, but it's, we, we should also keep very critical distance from uh, what the U.S. official says, what the CIA is uh, so generously feeding to the media, uh, starting from like three months ago when uh, there were no evidence signs that uh, anything like very soon invasion is prepared by Russia. And their media of public and uh, covered actions that uh, may actually contribute to the escalation. So what 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 is becoming kind of like more known uh, right now is that actually Ukrainian government uh, doesn't really take it so seriously for, for the, the prospects for the invasion in, in the very new, near future. I mean, in, in the course of the like two or three weeks, as it is like very explicitly stated by the top officials in the U.S. and just very recently by Boris Johnson, very like directly saying uh, within the same narrative. And which is skeptically taken by Germany, by, by France, which are kind of supposedly looking at the same data that CIA provides them, but saying that, no, we are not seeing any signs of what, what you are telling us is going on. And the Ukrainian uh, officials in the Ministry of Defense, in the, in the, in the Security Council, they say it's... They, they, basically, they uh, almost... Explicitly uh, allude that uh, the United States is uh, using this media scare for their domestic and geopolitical purposes. They are very vague because it's uh, like a super important partner for Ukraine right now, uh, and they're not ready to accuse them in very direct words. But what it's what we can read from their interviews, from their statements, it's it's basically this that that. that United States are kind of like exploiting uh, this this story, and uh, as I said, it, it's uh, uh, at, at least partially independent from the real actions from the Russian side, and and it's not only the Ukrainian government; it's also the independent analysts. Uh, just recently, the Center for Defense Strategies. It's, this is a think tank, um, Ukrainian think tank, which is headed by uh, the former Minister of Defense, published a report where they say that they regard very unlikely uh, a large, any, any large-scale invasion from Russia to Ukraine with occupation of large territories, with occupation of the big cities in the course of the next several weeks. But also they, they think it's very unlikely that they may do this uh, in the course of 
of uh, of 2022 until the end of the year. So they believe it's uh, much more probable that Russia may use so-called hybrid attacks, attacking the infrastructure, attacking maybe cyber attacks. And uh, at the very most, they may uh, do kind of like a targeted strikes. But they don't really see the preparations for a really large-scale invasion. Those uh, 100,000 or whatever... Uh, soldiers they amassed at, at the Ukrainian borders, at least as we are told, it uh, really looks like uh, far below the number of the military that would be required to attack such big country as Ukraine. And Ukrainian military is at least 200,000, and actually even more if you count all other institutions and all other units that that also have access to the arms and so on. So, yeah, that's uh, at least we need to keep keep in mind that, yes, Russia is doing something and they may respond if they won't be satisfied by the NATO response to their demands. But their response uh, not not necessarily will be targeted on Ukraine, and even if on Ukraine, it's not necessarily and probably very unlikely that it will be in that form of the large-scale attack and occupation, because then there would be different consequences, and uh, as the the report from the Center of Defense Strategies basically says, it would be simply suicidal for Putin. Even if they attack and occupy Ukraine, even if they would ready really to amass uh, enough forces uh, in a short time for this, then what are they going to do with this? How they, how how would it even solve their problems and how are they going to solve the new problems that would arise for Russian geopolitical situation, for Russian economy, for Russian government capacity to keep uh, the revolting population in Ukraine. So there would be many questions and, and many, 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 many problems with this. So I know this may require speculation, but what do you see as being the potential U.S. and EU and NATO interest in hyping the prospect of an invasion? And then what is Russia, what is Russia's interest in contributing to the sense of impending crisis on its end? You're completely right. These are speculations. And I've read many versions of the speculations. So some people connected to the to domestic processes in the, in the United States, uh, the uh, results of defeat in Afghanistan and the declining support for Biden and the midterm elections that would come not not very far from from this point. So it, it, it's been quite uh, often. This, this happened quite often when, when, uh, when the politicians are in the domestic trouble, the foreign policy escalation uh, are, is one of the tools they may try to solve these uh, troubles in the domestic policy, politics. At some point, there may be reasons for, for a Ukrainian attack on Donbass, although like many people say that uh, it would be suicidal for Ukraine because Russia just o- overwhelms Ukrainian army and in case they would try to get back Donbass by force, 
repeating what's been known as kind of like a Georgian scenario of South Ossetian scenario, so repeating the attack by Georgian President Saakashvili in 2008 on the separatist region South Ossetia, which ended in a five days war where the Russian army easily defeated the Georgians. And this is seriously discussed now in the Russian expert circles that um, it would be probably not bad to repeat this scenario in case of now, now to punish Ukraine and to force them to even more concessions, kind of like Minsk three uh, peace accords. I mean, from 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 the uh, constellation in Ukrainian domestic po- politics at the moment, it would be not really likely because uh, then uh, the consequences of this defeat would be put on Zelensky and. Even now, he feels uh, like not very secure in his office, antagonizing many different powerful players in Ukrainian politics. And also, as we are getting some information that uh, the Democrats in the United States are not really fond of Zelensky right now. So that would be risky. However, in case of even deeper troubles, uh, these people may consider this. Because anyway, the escalation of the war, it helps to unite a part of the public around uh, the government. Although that would be not really a smart move. And for some people in in the media, they, they explicitly say that creating from Ukraine another Afghanistan for Russia, it's not really bad. So why why not invite Russians into Ukraine and push them to the quite uh, severe political, economic, uh, and other consequences. That it's not necessarily that would be they would be able to survive. Uh, so that, 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 that's uh, at least uh, part of the reason. And there are also like the reasons why the United Kingdom, the Boris Johnson, is uh, now super active uh, in, uh, in this process and trying to turn the Br- Britain into a player in the Eastern European politics, uh, with these uh, uh, allegations about alliance, uh, Britain, Poland, Ukraine, some people even named Turkey uh, in this place. And uh, this may, may be a, uh, what stands behind that very mysterious and ridiculous uh, press release that the uh, UK Foreign Office recently published about, like, pro-Russian government headed by Yevgeny Murayev, uh, who is actually not a pro-Russian politician, and which was met with uh, a lot of laughter among very different circles in in Ukrainian uh, public. So these are the reasons. And and, and France and Germany are not that fond about escalating with Russia and taking a much more careful position and not, not really buying to the narrative of the imminent invasion that we just need to do everything possible to, to stop it. What about Russia's motivation? I think in recent weeks are probably the first time I've ever read the words NATO expansion in the mainstream American press because Putin put those demands on the table and the press finally had to, to, to report that as an issue of concern to Russia. And do you think that stopping NATO expansion is Russia's primary motivation for the actions that it's taking to escalate 
the present crisis, or does it have to do with Russian domestic politics, or or both, or something else entirely? I mean, one of the puzzles is that actually, the if if they would really risk to go into the major invasion to Ukraine, the Russian public won't really like it. And that's what we clearly see from the polls. And the annexation of Crimea was almost bloodless. Uh, the intervention into Syrian war also didn't uh, didn't bring serious uh, serious casualties to Russian military. The operation in Kazakhstan was just very short, but practically bloodless. So these were huge successes for Russia, and uh, these were the moves which uh, achieved their goals without really that much of uh, uh, consequences, consequences even if we consider the international sanctions after Crimean annexation. So the attack on Ukraine, which, and especially uh, ground troops attack that would bring like many casualties to the Russian army, from what we know about the moods of the Russian public, that won't be taken enthusiastically, to say the least. So for Russia, they may use this opportunity to escalate, to press on the, like the maximal demands, and probably they would get something from this only with the threat of invasion, but not, not, not really going far enough. And uh, what they are getting right now is uh, NATO and the United States are ready to talk with them, at least about uh, the uh, some of the regulation for the military trainings in in uh, in close proximity, about the location of the troops and and rockets. This is important. Probably they won't give a very clear, like, uh, ultimative uh, projection of Ukraine's prospects to NATO. But there is no uh, consensus on, on taking NATO into the alliance uh, in, in any case. And one of the results of, of Russian, uh, Russian actions is actually increasing the discord among NATO. And this is also positive for Russia. And so if they would be able to increase the tensions between Germany and the United States and France is all, would, would be also on the side of the Germany, that's, uh, that, that, that's great. That's, uh, that's not really bad. So that's, that's uh, the things that uh, Putin is capable to win right now. On the other side, if uh, the target of media narrative about the uh, imminent invasion is actually Germany, and with the goal of pushing them to be more harsh on the Nord Stream, that's one of the risks. That's the that's the gas pipeline being built from Russia to Germany. Yeah, yeah, that is uh, it, it is built, but it is not certified, and there are certain bureaucratic technical issues with the certification. And uh, now the the ball is on the German side, actually. And so if this discussion of the imminent invasion, sanctions, and so on, so on and so forth, would undermine the Nord Stream, then uh, Putin would be not in a great balance as a result of what's going on. But he might have some of the motivations. 
Stepping back a bit in history for listeners who aren't familiar, why did the U.S. and European powers pursue NATO expansion after the Soviet Union's collapse, given that NATO's reason for existing no longer existed and that Russia at the time was really rather subservient to the United States? At one point, Russia even thought it could join NATO. But that's, of course, not how things worked out. Instead, NATO expanded eastward and Russia often describes feeling encircled, which I can only imagine how Americans would react to a Russian or any sort of hostile foreign military alliance extending out to Canada and Mexico. I mean, that, that's, a, that's a great question. And uh, as I understand, uh, I, I mean, I'm not a historian of, of, of NATO and, uh, and uh, of this period. So uh, I just may say what, what sounds to me as a uh, convincing explanation. And, and part of it is uh, that the states uh, didn't care that much about Russia. And they actually believe that Russia is going to be in decline and they may do whatever they want in the in the Eastern Europe. So the Eastern Europe were seen as a path to uh, Europe and at the same time as a defense from possible Russian actions. So they had uh, very long-term historical grievances against Russia and NATO were perceived by them as, uh, as a security shield. Did those people in the States and in other Western European countries uh, consider that expanding NATO, they are actually making NATO less effective mechanism of security because now they're seriously discussing are they going to fight with Russia in case they would attack Baltic states? Do they really care about Baltic states? And that it means, and if not, it means that the, the, the goal, it, 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 it supposedly exists, security, protecting everyone. And these are the questions which, are, for some reason, they uh, are voiced, or at least uh, prominently voiced, only in, in the recent years. Uh, I, I recall this discussion started only after 2014, after Crimean annexation and after escalation of, uh, of, of the relations with Russia. But why they didn't think about this in the 90s when they expanded up to small Baltic states they don't really care about, that's a, that's a big mystery for me. Some people think that they were just too enthusiastic about what's going on and too uh, self-confident about the imminent Russia Russian decline. And then this, the story about Ukraine and Georgia, which were actually pushed, I mean, not, not really pushed, but actively invited by George W. Bush, and which resulted in that infamous decision by Bucharest uh, summit in 2008, uh, when they decided that Ukraine and Georgia will become members of NATO without uh, giving them the membership action plan and without specifying in what time period they would eventually become members of NATO because of the position of Germany and France, which were thinking about uh, that uh, Russia uh, has been voicing their concerns about NATO expansion since uh, 1990s. And perhaps U Ukraine and Georgia are way too far for this. 
so this uh, this event uh, should be probably seen in 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 the context of other George W. Bush. Uh, expansionist actions that uh, ended in the war in Afghanistan, in the war in Iraq, and uh, that was uh, the person who was pushing uh, for expanding the American interests in in this part of the world. Where do Ukrainians and the Ukrainian government fit into all of this? Because, as you mentioned earlier, rather inconveniently, the Ukrainian government is nowhere near as exercised about the prospect of a Russian invasion as the U.S. and the American media are. And it just really seems like the conflict is about Ukraine, but it often doesn't seem to involve Ukraine or Ukrainians as active participants. Yes, it's uh, kind of... (laughs) That's that's a very sad reality, and it's the deterioration of Ukrainian sovereignty, especially after 2014, and when when Ukraine became more and more dependent in military, economically, politically on the United States, partially on the European states as well, and now they are talking about Ukraine. uh, very often without Ukraine and Ukrainians, uh, not Ukrainian government is actually insisting on this formula that you should discuss Ukraine only together with us. However, in, in reality, uh, what we see uh, are direct negotiations between the United States and Russia about Ukraine, where Ukraine is is not really not really present. And and the biggest problem is actually that. To which extent the Ukrainian government, which says that, of course, we want to get into NATO, and why why are we not in NATO already, as uh, the President Zelensky asked Biden uh, last year, very directly, why Ukraine is not a member of NATO. Uh, But this question is not really asked to Ukrainians. When when they decided in Bucharest that Ukraine will become a part of NATO, support for for joining NATO in Ukraine was below 20%. And most of Ukrainians were split about uh, keeping the neutral status as it was inscribed into the foundational documents of of Ukrainian state, into the constitution, into the declaration of sovereignty. Ukraine is a non-block country, meaning it doesn't join any military alliances. So when George W. Bush was pushing for this and when uh, moderately nationalist pro-Western president Yushchenko was also kind of like applying for for NATO membership, they didn't really ask Ukrainians. And yeah, I, I didn't mention that most of Ukrainians were split uh, between the supporters of neutrality and supporters of joining a military alliance with Russia, the CSTO. Th- th- this very low level of support it was more or less the same, about 20% or even lower, until the Euromaidan revolution and until the following events in Crimea, in Donbass, where part of Ukrainians started to see Russia as a real threat and NATO as the uh, security mechanism against Russia, Russia. So at that moment, support for NATO uh, increased up to about 40%. But 40%, it's not the majority. And this level of support of about 40, 45%, according to some polls, 
was fluctuating um, until 2019. And this was an amazing uh, phenomenon in the Ukrainian public mood, because uh, even after years of the war with Russia, a large part of Ukrainians were not really ready to embrace NATO, because they saw NATO uh, as, as, as perhaps as another institution that would deprive declining Ukrainian sovereignty. They were scared that joining NATO would mean uh, dragging Ukraine into American wars. And they uh, didn't want to join NATO because of uh, possible increase of tensions with Russia. So Ukraine would become less secure in NATO. And because of the tensions uh, among Ukrainians themselves. So there the, are the, um, many rational reasons that we know from the studies that uh, try to measure the factors of support for NATO in Ukraine. And in 2019, Zelensky uh, is uh, elected as a president. He was super popular and he campaigned for NATO. And uh, he was able to detoxify the issue of NATO from uh, uh, Ukrainian nationalist issues, which uh, by the previous president Poroshenko, they were more like connected. Poroshenko was pushing uh, forward the nationalization uh, policies and at the same time he pushed through the parliament uh, a decision to change Ukrainian constitution and to inscribe there the orientation to Euro-Atlantic integration instead of the non-block status. So in Ukrainian constitution now it says that Ukraine is heading towards NATO, although it may probably never turn into a real NATO member. That's uh, an irony of the situation. And uh, another reason for a recent increase of pro-NATO support is, of course, uh, Russian build-ups last year, which uh, scares a significant part of Ukrainian public. But whether these uh, factors would uh, stay and whether we would see a a stable majority for NATO and Ukraine at the moment, that's uh, a big question because Zelensky is not that popular anymore and he's losing his popularity. And uh, the crisis would be over at some moment and probably with some concessions from the United States and NATO that may be seen by a part of Ukrainians as betrayal. And uh, and some people would won't, won't be so scared anymore as as they may be now. So it may happen that uh, in the next year or in the next two years we may see the decline of NATO support uh, because uh, NATO support it's uh, it still is uh, quite highly correlating with the understanding of uh, by Ukrainians of their own national identity, and that there are very significant differences between Western and Central regions on the one side and Eastern and Southern regions on the other side. And in Eastern South, support for neutrality may be even higher than support for, for NATO. And a really stable, overwhelming majority in support for NATO exists only in the Western regions of Ukraine. One thing that really jumps out to me, you mentioned this irony of Ukraine's official intention to join NATO, even though it'll likely never happen is that the U.S. refuses to negotiate limiting NATO expansion with Russia and yet also makes it clear that it will not take direct military action in case of, of a Russian invasion to defend Ukraine against Russia. So on the surface level, the U.S. and NATO posture is about solidarity with Ukraine. Uh, 
But given that they will neither negotiate to defend Ukraine from Russian invasion nor militarily defend Ukraine against a Russian invasion, it seems pretty clear that some other principle that has nothing in particular to do with solidarity with Ukraine is guiding their approach. I mean, yes, it's, you know, the, the American foreign policy is quite cynical sometimes. On the one side, of course, uh, you might say, who would want a nuclear war? Or even uh, <laughs> a real chance of, uh, of the war between uh, the nuclear states? That would mean uh, direct support for, for Ukraine and uh, sending the troops to Ukraine and so on, of course. On the other side, supporting without real military intervention in Ukraine is also beneficial for the United States. They may send the weapons there. They may turn Ukraine into a big problem for Russia. Uh, there are reports that CIA was training Ukrainian paramilitaries that would play a role in uh, anti-Russian resistance. Uh, now many countries are sending weapons there, and a new war would be also the new profits for the weapons industry. And uh, so there are many benefits that may be won uh, with uh, Russia invited to attack Ukraine and stuck there. Yeah, the like you mentioned earlier, that some in the U.S. national security and European national security states might see an Afghanistan for Russia, a second Afghanistan for Russia, as a positive thing, which says something about how the U.S. and West generally regard Afghans and, I suppose, Ukrainians as well. Yeah, it's, it's, it's quite possible, but although we don't know how prominent is this opinion among the real decision makers. I want to delve into the more recent history that led up to the present crisis, beginning with the Euromaidan revolution of 2014. You write, quote, As the story goes, in 2014, Ukrainians from different regions, which merged into one modern state only during World War II, finally truly united in the civic inclusive nation born in the revolution. Ukrainians made their civilizational choice in favor of the Western geopolitical orientation and are defending it against Russian aggression, which is attempting to return Ukraine to its sphere of influence. The war in Donbass that followed in 2014 is presented as primarily an interstate war and not a direct continuation of the violent civil conflict that started in the last days of Euromaidan, even before any military moves by Russia. There's a lot to unpack in your analysis here, so I want to take it piece by piece. First, what was the Euromaidan revolution about? In particular, what did Europe mean to Euromaidan protesters in 2014? What did it mean to the protest's opponents? And how did the question of Europe versus Russia become so central to it? Uh, Europe was uh, a trigger, uh, the, uh, specifically the uh, European Association Agreement that uh, Ukrainian President Yanukovych was for some time seemingly ready to sign, but in the very last moment he decided that the economic costs of... Uh, that uh, Russians actually 
were threatening Ukraine with, and uh, not just threatening, but they started kind of like a trade war in 2013. So they they, they were very serious about uh, pushing Ukraine uh, rather to join the Eurasian, or what at that moment it was called simply customs union with Russia, Belarus, and Kazakhstan, and uh, keeping them away from from the orientation towards EU. And EU at that moment was uh, denying any possibility of the tripartite uh, negotiations. It would include Russia, Ukraine, and Europe. And uh, when Russia was saying that if you want to to sign the free trade zone agreement, uh, because the association agreement was was primarily about a free trade zone between EU and Ukraine. And that would, of course, uh, had an impact for the trade between Russia and Ukraine. So Russian position at that moment was that, uh, okay, let's decide it in the, in tripartite negotiations. And the EU was saying something like what the United States and NATO are saying now. So that's, that these are exclusive relations between Europe, European Union and Ukraine, and uh, there is no voice for Russia in, in these relations. Uh, so uh, the uh, escalation of uh, of tensions and uh, analysis of the economic consequences for particularly for Ukrainian most advanced parts of economy that were primarily the still Soviet uh, industries not be that competitive anymore in the free trade zone and the demands uh, that uh, were attached to this European Association Agreement, particularly from IMF, about increasing the prices for public utilities, a hugely sensitive question for the majority of the population that would have an impact for the prospects for uh, Yanukovych re-elections. So they pushed Yanukovych to stop very suddenly, very unexpectedly, and that was a trigger by the liberal civil society to start the Euromaidan protests. Maidan means basically the central square. This is how the the central square in Kyiv is also called Independence Maidan. And this was a square where two previous uh, revolutions also took place in 1990 and in 2004. And then they started the Euromaidan protests, which were not that big until the quite harsh repression, attack on uh, on the protesters' camp uh, with quite many people injured uh, by the right police, very unexpectedly, and we still don't really understand in full who actually ordered that attack. There are conspiracy theories that uh, Yanukovych did not even know about this attack because it was so counterproductive for, for the escalation of the events that followed that uh, it would be a very dumb move. To do this, and maybe he was set up either by his uh, some of some of his uh, uh, employees, uh, part of parts of, of his team. There are different people who are named for this. So, in any case, relatively small and uh, peaceful protests escalated into uprising, and then it turned into much more uh, different things than just Europe. From the beginning, Europe was seen as a kind of like a civilizational choice, as, as, as you quoted uh, from, from my article. But this vision of the civilizational choice was probably the vision only from, uh, from one part 
of the protesters, not necessarily even even the majority. This was the narrative of the NGO civil society supported by the Western donors and uh, middle-class people, English-speaking, good connections with the embassies, uh, often with the Western university degrees and so on. For other people, especially uh, when the uprising escalated, they were f- they were putting their diverse grievances, uh, and and this is actually a, a very general problem of the many contemporary revolutions that bring many people to the streets. However, these massive uh, mobilizations, which sometimes even end into toppling of the government, they do not lead to any systemic change. And the problem starts even with articulating those programs for systemic change and creating the institutions, the political organizations that would lead towards those systemic change. So that's why we... Uh, we are actually seeing like a huge number of the revolutions and, and some, some scholars, as Mark Basinger, for example, in, in his forthcoming book, he's calculating the, the number of revolutions which actually increased in the recent years. But we see a lot of revolutions without any major institutional revolutionary change that, that follow them. You describe Euromaidan as, quote, a deficient revolution along with your colleague Oleg Zhavlov, you write, quote, Revolutions have been plentiful in post-Soviet countries, but unlike classic revolutionary examples, they have been remarkably consistent in failing to establish a more stable political order and states autonomous from the influence of patronage. Post-revolutionary leaders and parties have either quickly lost power or had significant problems with re-election. Institutional and structural changes have remained limited. It has become typical in these countries to view these revolutions as just another cycle of elite circulation that changed nothing. What then explains, as you write, quote, this pattern of frequent but ineffective revolutions, revolutions that have periodically swept not only Ukraine, both in 2014 and in 2004 with the Orange Revolution, but also Kyrgyzstan, Armenia, Georgia, Moldova. Yeah, we, together with Oleg, uh, we are trying to uh, generalize the analysis of Ukrainian Maidans, and we think it's, it, it would be it would make sense to speak about Maidan revolutions in general, not necessarily only in relation to Ukraine, but also at least to other post-Soviet states and maybe to other states as well. And what we mean by Maidan revolutions is exactly it's a deficient revolution, and it is a deficient revolution because it uh, it combines the revolutionary repertoire of action, massive mobilization, sometimes. Um, uh, assaulting the the the, the buildings for, uh, using unarmed violence, sometimes using even armed violence, and we've just seen in Kazakhstan that revolution may may escalate into very violent uh, actions very quickly now. Uh, in contrast to to the, for example, to the pattern of uh, nineteen eighty nine revolutions that uh, mostly went uh, very nonviolent, now we see the increased the increased violence. So these are radical violent mobilizations, but which at the same time, they are paralleled only with very poorly articulated claims. The people are, for example, are are saying something that we are for Europe, civilizational choice. 
very often they, they use this very vague moralistic language, revolution of dignity, freedom, uh, honesty, and so on and so forth, which is very vague and which uh, translate into specific programs not really well. I mean, there are people who would start uh, later to exploit this revolutionary legitimacy in order to push for their very specific programs, which uh, may not really represent the majority of participants. So vaguely articulated claims, very loosely organized. Many revolutions were diverse, like classical French or Russian revolution, where we all, they were also like cross-class coalitions, in fact. However, they, they, were, they were also powerful leaders within those uh, revolutions that, that were really, they were real political representatives of the masses of workers, peasants, and they would be, they were really uh, capable to to speak on behalf of them and to push forward the ur- urgent Im- imminent interests of the broad social classes however not anymore so we have we see also very diverse coalitions but they are very also loosely organized and that means again a possibility for hijacking the revolution and uh, and and finally the leaders of those uh, of the revol- of the maidan revolutions are also quite weak they uh, if you if you speak for example about euromaidan those political party leaders from the opposition to yanukovych they were uh, mistrusted and ridiculed by many supporters at maidan square they they, they were not seen as leaders and that means a possibility for the situational leadership. For example, at the moment of escalation, uh, prepared radical nationalists may come in at the critical moment, escalate the fights with the police, and now lead, at least situationally, at least for some time, uh, the violent uh, development of the revolution, as it happened during Euromaidan. So these deficient revolutions they produce a revolutionary legitimacy after uh, which afterwards may be exploited by various political forces appealing to this legitimacy and pushing forward their often quite unpopular agendas. So what happened in Euromaidan is that the people who uh, protested not for joining NATO and there were like specific like leaflets, like people in the East we are not going to impose Ukrainian language on you. We are not against Russian language. We are not for NATO. We are not even for EU. We are just fed up with Yanukovych. We want decent jobs. We want decent wages and so on and so forth. So this, this would be a, a feeling that would appeal to many protesters on, on the Kiev streets. But what happened afterwards, the various forces were exploiting the outcomes of the revolution, pushing it directly to the nationalization policies, to attacking the use of Russian language in public sphere for for NATO, as we see right now, and uh, for other new liberal and nationalist policies that uh, were not exactly those things that the majority of protesters were prefer to see. And, and we see this pattern in many other post-Soviet revolutions. Uh, we see them 
happening in many places and we see them more and more frequently. So, and, and that's uh, another consequence of them. They are not creating strong, stable political regimes. As for example, the, 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 the result of, of the Russian Revolution, the, the political regime that lasted for over 70 years. It's, it's like Sida Skochpol from her super classical work. Uh, she, she argued that the result of the revolution was a strong state. This was about the classical social revolution. The result of contemporary Maidan revolutions is actually a weaker state. Which is uh, and which is why we see an escalation of these revolutions. Ukraine uh, have seen three revolutions in the life of just one generation, and it's quicker and quicker and quicker. We've seen three revolutions in in Kyrgyzstan, uh, Central Central Asian uh, Republic. Uh, recently, a revolution in Kazakhstan, uprising, uh, uprising in Kazakhstan, which was like, a, a, again kind of like overtaken by uh, an elite struggle, as far as I understand what's going on right now. A revolution in Armenia, a revolution in Georgia, attempts for, for similar protests in Belarus. And so we see this shaking of, of the political regimes and the resulting institutions are not actually stronger. They are not more representative. They are not capable to uh, win a broad legitimacy of, of, of the masses. And, and this uh, creates the grounds of even more revolutions. And at, and at some point, this uh, escalating organic crisis, if we were to use Gramscian term, then it would lead to, to quite, may lead to quite disastrous Results and one of the consequences is particularly the escalation of nationalism because the, if the post-revolutionary governments cannot deliver in decent wages in decent jobs, escalating national tensions is one of the way to compensate for the deficiency of revolutionary outcomes. And so we've we've got a war and escalation of nationalist policies in Ukraine. We've got a war between Armenia and uh, Azerbaijan uh, that followed uh, the Armenian revolutions. Uh, we've got military conflict between Kyrgyzstan and Tajikistan right after another one, uh, Kyrgyz revolution, and, 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 and so on and so forth. So that this may be also... Uh, yeah, and uh, the, the, the classical example is uh, what I mentioned, the attempt by Georgia to regain South Ossetia, also led by post-revolutionary president. So this may be a, a general pattern and a, a way to compensate for the deficiency of, of, of the revolutions, which at the same time reproduce and escalate the crisis of representation even more. Well, yeah, about that crisis of represent, representation, you write that what's driving these Maidan revolutions is a persistent crisis of representation across the post-Soviet world. Why? Why is it proven impossible to achieve any sort of post-Soviet hegemony. What, what are these revolutions attempting to break free of and why do they end up back in the same place? Many, speakers, many people actually speak about the crisis of representation or organic crisis in many parts of the world that the people... Right, are right, here, in the, right here in the United exactly. States. Exactly, <laughs> yeah, 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 yeah. Exactly, that people don't trust, uh, less and less trust the government, less and less trust democratic institutions, they less participate in politics and so on and so forth. So you understand, but uh, what, what we are living through in the post-Soviet countries is actually... The crisis of hegemony or the crisis of political he representation that uh, 
it has its roots uh, even in the 60s, in the end of the 60s, when the Communist Party was not being able anymore to claim leadership and in the progressive modernization of, this, of, the, of the Soviet Union. And they, it, it started to be perceived as a parasitic elite, uh, as uh, the people who are not able to push forward uh, our country and uh, which was becoming more uh, less and less capable to uh, reach the um, technological and uh, consumer levels of the capitalist countries it was com- competing with uh, very directly and this was like the part very important part of the official rhetoric and we were the the people in the Soviet Union were supposed to live better and better. However, there was the the, the lease was stagnating, and uh, uh, that was a part of uh, like the factor for the massive disappointment in the Communist Party. But it it also was not able to integrate the activization in the in the sixties, which had its peak in the Prague Spring in nineteen sixty eight, but. There were like similar processes processes in the, in the Soviet Union. Many young people enthusiastic actually about communism, but meeting a conservative reaction from the communist nomenclature. And Gorbachev was trying to modernize uh, the Soviet Union, but still keeping the socialist foundations of the Soviet Union state. He failed, and what? happened afterwards was a chaotic disintegration of the elite. This elite, this post-Soviet elite, which was uh, emerging very quickly in the end of the 80s, in the beginning of the 90s, they emerged in the process of uh, chaotic privatization of the state property, which uh, is uh, has been widely seen until this moment as basically a theft, a theft of the a property created by the sacrifices and by the work of the millions of, of Soviet people. And, and we see still... It was a moment of primitive accumulation. Exactly, yeah. But that, in case of Western Europe, that moment was actually... Uh, it was not a moment. It was like decades and centuries of primitive accumulation. In the beginning of the post-Soviet period, it happened during weeks and months, at most years. And also the difference with the classical primitive accumulation at the dawn of capitalism, that there were no ideological, religious, traditional legitimation for big property, especially the big property taken from the people, from the state and privatized. So uh, this elite was seen as extremely illegitimate from the very start. It's not that they had a kind of like hegemony, had legitimacy earlier, but then lost it. That's uh, the process probably that maybe may describe the processes in, in the United States or in Western Europe. It, that, that from the very start, these oligarchs, these uh, Putins, Lukashenko, Yanukovych, they, they, they didn't have that, uh, that much of the, the re- really uh, active consent for their rule. And these post-Soviet elites, they were not able to solve this uh, crisis of legitimacy, crisis of uh, representation. 
and 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 this is the the basic uh, background factor for the post-Soviet revolutions, and and for the instability of political regimes in in post-Soviet space that maybe only temporarily stabilized via what what Gramsci called Caesarism, or like usually in Marxism called Bonapartism. No, not really a hegemonic rule, but the rule which uh, primarily is based on uh, balancing and uh, balancing some interests and coercion of other interests. And Putin, Lukashenko are probably the best examples of this post-Soviet Caesarism. And in case of Ukraine, it was for for various reasons it was con- continuously failing. We've seen. Uh, only one of Ukrainian presidents uh, was capable to, to to get re-elected for the second term. It was Leonid Kuchma. And so so we've seen actually six uh, presidents and like like dozens of, of changing governments during the 30 years of uh, of Ukraine's independence. And that, that's a very good, quite quite a good uh, measure for the severity of organic crisis and incapacity of elites even to unite among themselves and to create any 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 stable uh, structure that would like potentially afterwards would we would be able to claim a broader representation within the society what about russia and china and various anti-imperialist leftists all over the place who frame these so-called color revolutions as a Western conspiracy. What do you make of that argument? Is it a vulgar and reductive anti-imperialism that fails to take account of a lot of complexity and domestic reality? And or does it also get at some truths? I mean, that's uh, it's, 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 it's both, of course. Surely it's, it's a way to, to delegitimize the revolutions. And to to claim that there are no legitimate concerns that drive people to the streets. Of course, there there are legitimate concerns. There are other problems that even those concerns, even those grievances, are not articulated. They are not organized, and so the result of the revolutions is not solution for the crisis, but kind of like escalation of that crisis. And moreover, the, those revolutions they actually they do not challenge the ruling class. At most, they drive out one of the factions, uh, one of the patronal groups in, 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 in that class. So the example of Viktor Yanukovych is, is, is very noteworthy in this respect because Yanukovych is one of perhaps very few people in, in human history, one of very few rulers who was toppled twice. So he was toppled in t- t- 2004 by the Orange Revolution, one of the previous Maidans. However, just in two years after that, after the Orange Revolution, he was uh, invited as the prime minister in the post-revolutionary government. And in just in five years, he was elected as the president. And then in 20. 20- 14, he was toppled twice, the second time. And and that means that you can have a revolution which changes practically nothing except of uh, removing a group of the, one group of the ruling elite, but not challenging the ruling class. And for the ruling class, it's uh, it means that it's quite uh, possible to adapt 
to, to the revolution, to join the post-revolutionary government because it doesn't really threaten the, the most uh, basic fundamental economic interests. That's what, what, what's happening. So Putin and, 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 and Lukashenko are delegitimizing Maidans because they threaten them personally. And they, of course, they are trying to present them as an issue of uh, national security, that this is an imperialist plot, a Western plot against our countries. It's on the one side, it's, it's a delegitimation of the revolutions. On the other side, because of the deficiency of those revolutions, what is often happens is that the West actually is getting more influence in, in, this, in these countries. And Ukraine is a, is a perfect example for this. Yeah, you, you write that after Euromaidan, quote, what primarily changed was the volume of resources, financial and violent, for the narrow civil society wedge to intensify its pressure on the Ukrainian state to advance neoliberal and nationalist agendas, which, for the most part, still do not represent the interests of the macro-social groups that constitute Ukrainian society. At the same time, the state became more vulnerable to pressure from civil society by becoming more dependent on foreign support, and also because its monopoly on legitimate violence was questioned during the course of the Euromaidan and war in Donbass. What is Ukrainian civil society? What constitutes it? And what do you mean by that civil society being both powerful and very narrow? Yeah, it's a, it's a great question, and uh, there is really not sufficient research to to study the post-Soviet civil societies, and that's that's actually a great topic for discussion, and not not only for academic research, but for basic political strategy for progressive forces in our in our societies. So, why narrow? And it's not only in Ukraine; it's also in other post-Soviet countries. And uh, in Ukraine, maybe it's not the most narrow, but still, according to the polls that are conducted every year, we see one and the same figure. The pollsters ask people, do you belong to any organization, charity, political, um, urban, um, artistic, whatever? And 80% of the people respond, that I'm not a member of any of these organizations. And this uh, figure um, is, is just almost constant for decades in Ukrainian society, despite all the revolutions that are supposed to mobilize people, to empower people. To... So this, this, uh, the, the, this, the, the deficiency of revolutions is also results also in, the, in that it's, they are not capable to create, to, to translate the revolutionary dynamics into creation of the stable institutions, not only in the state, but also in the civil society level. The people are temporarily mobilized, but then they are demobilized. And they are not staying part of a stable organization that would represent some specific interests of, of the diverse society. So in this sense, the civil society is actually narrow, like a small minority of Ukrainian people, small but very active minority. And that's why it's powerful. Specifically, after the the Maidan revolutions, it's becoming more powerful because on the one side, you get a weaker state 
undermined by by the violence, undermined by the external threats, undermined by increased dependency because of the external threats. And uh, at the same time, the uh, nationalist part, nationalist segment of the civil society who got arms, who got stronger, who who is organized into probably the most ideological discipline, disciplined uh, organizations that are capable for sustained uh, street mobilization. So they can push by the force of, of their mobilization and by the ultimate threats of uh, for, of an armed uprising that they actually voiced in, in the critical uh, and not simply voiced but uh, make sure that they are not, they are quite serious about this threat and, and this is one of the reasons why why Ukraine was failing to implement the Minsk Minsk peace accords because the national civil society was was explicitly threatening with violence in case the the government would, the government would go for so-called capitulation and the other these are the these are the 2015 Minsk Accords, which were supposed to end the violence and the con- the violent conflict in Donbass. Yeah, exactly, and which on which didn't see significant significant progress since four 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 seven yeah for seven years at this moment, and the liberal and neoliberal part of the civil society organized into NGOs, think tanks media, advocacy organizations, but not really community mobilizers. And the organizations which primarily depend on the support from Western donors, which are very professionalized, and this is like a quite narrow group of similar people with similar careers, similar understanding of the world, uh, ideological in the very specific liberal sense, and who are capable to push on the government via the indirect indirect route, saying to the embassies, to IMF, to foreign international organizations, which are very important for for the government, that uh, you are not implementing this list of very, very important reforms that are usually... uh, technocratic, anti-corruption, neoliberal stuff, uh, very often uh, really hated by the people. But uh, for this technocratic uh, middle-class Western-sponsored people, this are their vision of of the country's development. And the people who are regularly called civil society and who claim to be Ukrainian civil society who are speaking on behalf of the civil society very often in exactly these terms, writing some petitions with the red lines to the government, uh, particularly against the Minsk Accords, with signatures of many uh, liberal and nationalist organizations. And that's also another important thing that uh, nationalist and liberal segments are very closely interconnected with each other. And the things that would not be seen in in, in Western countries where liberals would be um, more or less separated from the nationalist segment of politics uh, at the moment, probably seeing each other as, as the, like the, the primary enemies in the culture wars uh, in Ukraine, they they're holding together. 
and 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 not 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 just hold it together, but also often uh, cooperating and uh, joining similar mobilization campaigns, and so on and so forth. And and there are differences about uh, gender issues uh, at some moment uh, are turning not that important. And the problem is that the left segment of the civil society doesn't exist practically at the moment, particularly because of the post-Yermadan repression. And uh, the uh, kind of like syndicalist segment of the civil society is quite weak. The the weak trade unions, the weak uh, social movement organizations, and uh, the non-nationalist segment of... uh, Ukrainian politics is kind of like underdeveloped. So, and, and, and this is also the part of, of that crisis of hegemony of, of post-Soviet uh, political elites, which were more interested in, in the very short-term electoral goals. And so, for example, like buying pundits, buying TV stations that would deliver quick electoral results However, not really uh, investing into creating the intellectual circles that would be thinking about some programmatic agendas, leading some ideological discussions, not creating like like magazines, uh, important newspapers. So something more durable uh, that would uh, that could present some alternative to the Western-sponsored civil society or the national civil society. And, th- and that's why when, when, when the government turned, turns into quite obvious and very evident repression against uh, oligarchic opposition politicians, as specifically escalated during the last year, and it could be actually one of the factors of, of Russian escalation that they, they've seen that the people that uh, are kind of like more Russia-friendly, like Viktor Medvedchuk, one of the most prominent people who is at the same time kind of like a, not really a relative, but in, in, in a good friendship connection with Putin personally. And uh, so they see that U- Ukrainian government uh, just basically bans his TV, st- TV stations, imposes sanctions on him personally, keeps him in, in under the house arrest, and that uh, the post- potential allies within Ukraine have uh, don't have any um, real chances to to get into the governing coalition, and the West is just uh, closing their eyes on on what's going on. So there is a real repression against this. I don't really li- li- like to characterize them as pro-Russian, but in the Western press they are mainly labeled as pro-Russian opposition politicians, and there is no mobilization in defense of them, although they actually are capable to gather quite significant part of Ukrainian electorate. The the party that Medvedchuk was one of the leaders, at the moment when he got under, under Ukrainian sanctions, it was polled as the most popular party in Ukraine. So the Zelensky basically he closed the TV stations affiliated to the most popular opposition party and started a trial against one of the leaders of this party on the quite very dubious legal grounds. I'm Astrid Taylor, and you're listening to The Dig with Daniel Denver, 
a podcast for people who want to deeply understand the world and organize to change it. That's why you should support the show at patreon.com slash the dig. The Dig is produced in conjunction with Jacobin Magazine. These are tough times for publishing, but Jacobin is sticking at it, publishing over 200 original essays every month online and producing the best socialist print magazine in the English language. Jacobin's work is just so vital in creating socialist arguments that can penetrate into the mainstream and, like Marx says, change, not just interpret, the world. But this work is dependent on your support. If you're able, please consider going to jacobinmag.com donate and making a tax-deductible donation today. Regular monthly donations help Jacobin plan even better. That's jacobinmag.com donate. You'll keep Jacobin going in tough times, and Jacobin will be there for you for the struggles to come. You write that, quote, Ukraine's active public since 2014 became dominated by two major segments, the liberal segment of professional think tanks, media, and advocacy organizations boosted with Western donor money, yet with little grassroots mobilization, and the radical nationalist segment that has built party organizations with the strongest, as to the low Ukrainian bar, mobilization potential, and has accumulated extraordinary paramilitary resources thanks to weakening state institutions. I want to ask about these Ukrainian nationalist forces. Some leftists outside of Ukraine, I think maybe in reaction to the simplistic mainstream romanticization of Ukrainian nationalism, portray the entirety of Ukrainian nationalism as essentially CIA-backed Nazis. Who are the nationalists, and to what extent is it accurate to reduce the broader currents of pro-European politics to right-wing and even fascist nationalism? There are a variety of the right-wing, of course. So it's just, it's not proper to call it fascist and Nazi. I mean, all the variety of currents in in Ukrainian civil society. So, as I mentioned, uh, there is a liberal segment, and these people believe about themselves as liberals. So they see the ideal ideal development for Ukraine in uh, kind of like becoming more and more similar to European Union and to the United States. Uh, kind of like a liberal democratic capitalist uh, country and there's like a very long history of these uh, developmentalist illusions in Eastern European uh, intelligentsia. So we've been always trying to catch up with the West and become similar to them. And we are always uh, failing in this. And in the process of trying to catch up, we may, be, we may sometimes be, may become even um, more distant from the, from, from the ultimate goals, I mean, in, in the vision of, of these people. Uh, at the same time, uh, they uh, usually support at least moderate version of Ukrainian nationalism. And uh, in, uh, in speaking about this, I mean, 
a vision of uh, kind of like more Ukrainian Ukraine. A Ukraine that would try to repeat uh, nation-building process as they uh, imagine it happened in Western Europe's in, in, in the 19th century. So basically one language, uh, more or less uh, the same uh, list of uh, foundational historical events that are mem- memorialized on the on the national level, uh, the list more or less consensual list of historical heroes of Ukraine, um, more or less uh, consensual narrative about Ukrainian history, the same holidays celebrated by uh, more or less overwhelming majority in Ukraine. This uh, nation-building project is uh, fundamentally anti-Russian. So they define Ukraine as fundamentally the opposite of Russia. And they see Ukraine as... uh, still uh, requiring a post-colonial emancipation from Russia. And that's why this anti-Russian fixation. It, it basically it exists as a, as a kind of like a, an ideological schema. What would be no, non-Russian or bad for Russia, that would be more Ukrainian or better for Ukraine. And that's a part of this, uh, for, particularly of this... Uh, uh, inclination to perceive the Minsk Accords as, as a capitulation, because that would be in the interest of Russia too. But they, uh, it, it's, it's, it's really difficult for them to think about this, that it may be better for the interest of Ukrainians as well. And that this uh, Ukraine-Russia relations may not necessarily be a zero-sum game. And, and, and as I mentioned, there is a, a, a different vision of Ukraine uh, within Ukrainian society. However, it's much worse organized into the active public that would uh, articulate an alternative vision of Ukrainian national development, for example, as a neutral um, state that uh, tries to keep good relations between uh, both with EU and Russia and uh, try to develop as a kind of like a bridge between between these powers. So the liberals, they are moderately nationalist and this kind of like a post-colonial sentiment uh, that also contributes to the legitimation of their close cooperation with the, uh, with, with the more extreme nationalist currents in Ukraine, although it's uh, just saying that this is a post-colonial condition that doesn't explain that much, particularly if you seriously look at the discussion of whether Ukraine was ever a Russian colony under the Soviet Union when when Ukraine became actually one of the most advanced parts of of that state and has never since the collapse of the Soviet Union reached that level of uh, industrial and welfare advance. But even even in the Russian Empire, it's still a contested issue and historians have uh, different opinions uh, about that. And one of the arguments is that uh, it's not that much of uh, colonial relations, uh, but uh, we should probably see it more like uh, relations between Spain and Catalonia, for example, or France and Provence or England and Scotland, 
probably would be one of the closest uh, historical parallels. So Ukrainians were seen not as a colonized nation, very far from how, for example, the Brits saw India or African colonies, or even how Russians saw Central Asia and Siberia. In in, in these regions, uh, this colonial uh, perspective uh, has much more relevance. Then in case in Ukraine, Ukrainians were seen as the core of Russian nation, as a crucial, indispensable core that Russians cannot even imagine themselves without that. And that's actually the line of that uh, infamous uh, recent article by Putin where he uh, claimed or the people who wrote that article for the for, for him claim that uh, Ukrainians and Russians are one people. And that uh, provoked an outrage from Ukrainian nationalists that, uh, of course, we are different people. But from the point of view of the Russian nation-building project, that's quite, uh, quite a typical uh, n- narrative. And so the relations between Ukrainians and Russians may be seen as a competition of uh, two nationalist projects. One of them, anti-Russian Ukrainian. Another one is actually a Russian nationalist project that uh, uh, failed to be implemented in in Russian Empire because Russian Empire collapsed. And then in the Soviet Union, the discussion was uh, not exactly that we are one people with Russians and Belarusians, but that we are three brotherly people uh, who had very strong historical relations. However, we are distant. So we have distant languages, not just dialects of the same of the same language as, as it was claimed uh, in, in Russian Empire. So instead of this colonial imperialist perspective, we may see it as more like a competition of nation-building projects. One of them, because particularly because of the international conjuncture, uh, have got now more more opportunities to establish itself. However, it's still failing to establish and to, to actually to unite the overwhelming majority around this project. It's, it's, it's what, what we see in, in many of the polls and in, in, on, on, the, on the language, on the perception of Ukrainian history, perception of, of Ukrainian future. We, we still see very harsh divergence. And this divergence, of course, like at this moment, many people say that United States is also deeply divided between Democrats and Republicans, progressives and conservatives, and Poland is divided, and Britain is super divided between pro-Brexiters and uh, uh, Remainers and so on and so forth. So why Ukraine is so different? However, there is also a difference in on which, uh, about what exactly you are divided. Is it, for example, like gender issues? Is it a specific policy like Brexit? Uh, or is it uh, like a fundamental understanding of what is your country about, what it was, what it is, and what it is going to be? So this divides maybe of, of different uh, scale. And in case of Ukraine, they also like very strongly correlating with each other that contributes to the salience of, of these divisions. And so that's, that's speaking about like more broadly about uh, the Ukrainian nationalist uh, issues, which uh, of course they are diverse. In, in terms of f- far right or even fascist nationalists that wield political and military power. 
Yeah, 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 exactly. The, the, the far right and more extreme interpretations of Ukrainian nationalism that uh, come particularly from uh, Bandera movement, uh, the organization of Ukrainian nationalists, which he was the leader of. Uh, this was an, the Nazi allied um, or Nazi sympathetic. At some point, they were collaborating with Nazis. Or, like, basically, they wanted to repeat uh, what the Croatian Ustasha were allowed to do to create an kind of like an independent but Nazi allied Ukrainian state. And when they proclaimed this Ukrainian state in the very first days of the German attack on the Soviet unions, the Germans were not actually happy about that and they sent Bandera to Sachsenhausen, Sachsenhausen camp. Uh, still, the, his organization and the insurrectionary movement, Ukrainian insurgent army, uh, which own the organization Ukrainian nationalists, were kind of like a political leadership of, uh, they uh, got the possibility to, to to do ethnic cleansing in Western Ukrainian lands, uh, killing dozens of thousands of Polish peasants. They also collaborated with Nazis in the Holocaust. No, not as the primary agent in the Holocaust, however, is still important. And there is a, like a groundbreaking book just recently published by John Paul Himka, a Canadian historian of Ukrainian origin, that covers specifically Ukrainian nationalists' involvement in in, in the Holocaust. And uh, and there are organizations that uh, derive their history tradition specifically from this extreme nationalism of uh, Nazi-allied, Nazi-collaborating, like, from the family of a broad fascist movements that uh, emerged in Europe in the 1930s. They derived their symbols, their ideology, their, they even tried to model organizational forms and try to uh, kind of continue this line in contemporary Ukrainian politics. Uh, very serious about the paramilitary uh, part of uh, of political movement, which now they got more opportunities to to expand, organize, institutionalize, and very serious and uh, about getting their arms. And now, because of the war, particularly, they are capable to to create something that is probably uh, unseen in any other European state. And that's uh, Azov movement, which uh, became quite notorious among the Western press, uh, however, without much consequences uh, within Ukraine. So this is uh, an armed regiment, an official unit within the National Guard institution, armed up to the tanks, armor, and it's a political party, National Corps Party, which is a political wing of the armed far-right movement. It's a paramilitary structure affiliated to both to the party and to the regiment. It's a wide infrastructure of uh, camps, training centers, offices, uh, summer camps for children, which became kind of like a horror show for some of the Western journalists that come there and write, yeah, here in Ukraine, Nazis are actually getting like teenagers and they teach them self-defense, 
armed fighting, and of course, given some of the ideological narratives there. And also that which became also quite internationally prominent, uh, and at at certain point in time becoming kind of like a kind of like a hub for the Western Nazis coming to Ukraine and joining Azov. In the early years of the war, they were even able to join Azov and fight in Donbass. And then this Western Nazis coming home and becoming like an object of a target of investigation and trials with some Americans particularly. So this is... Uh, this is some something extraordinary, and of course, it's uh, created on the one side by the conditions of the war, but also by the results of the violent revolution, which uh, undermined the state institutions and created all these opportunities, and uh, capturing arms, particularly in the last days of the of the revolution, and also by the legitimating discourses and collaboration of this liberal, moderately nationalist civil society, which sees this the far right maybe sometimes too radical, sometimes, for example, like more like liberal left part of the civil society criticizes the far right that of course they with their conservative gender agenda, they are very they kind of like useful idiots for Putin. And they give uh, Russian propaganda the objects to discredit Ukraine. And uh, maybe there are even some like conspiracy schemes between Russian security services and uh, Ukrainian far-right. Although Ukrainian far-right, of course, they have their organic uh, roots within Ukrainian society. And, uh, and, and, and the Western powers that are quite notoriously not pushing into dealing with the with the people and organizations armed organizations that may threaten Ukrainian government in implementing the international agreements that uh, Ukraine Germany France and Russia signed what are the far right nationalist vision for the Ukrainian nation beyond not being Russia do they do they share liberals european aspirations or are there aspirations to be more like an authoritarian political system like Russia, but just opposed to Russia? Or do their European aspirations look more like the Europe of Orban, Le Pen, and the Polish Law and Justice Party? Or is it something else entirely that they're after? Uh, they're, they're diverse about this. Uh, so, um, for example, the Svoboda Party, which was the most important party uh, uh, several years ago, I mean, electorally important. They were able to to get into the parliament in 2012 with 10% of the votes. And they played an important part in, in Euromaidan revolution as well. But uh, in 2014, they nearly, they, they basically they lost the elections. They didn't get into the parliament. They didn't get about like 0.3% they needed to get into the parliament. Uh, nevertheless, during the uh, b- before Euromaidan, they were actually Eurosceptic, and they uh, were fostering quite co- close relations with the National Front in France. I suppose it was called National Front at that moment, uh, Le Pen's party, 
Uh, however, during the Euromedan revolution, they kind of like reinterpreted what's going on and they started to see EU as a leverage against Russia. So if Russia is against the EU, we are, it's our kind of like natural ally. Uh, however, there, is, there are other currents that, uh, uh, as, as you mentioned, that more like if they are pro-European, they are pro-European in very specific sense, in the sense of, of like white Europe, and uh, in uh, not really happy about uh, LGBT issues in the European Union, very much. Uh, repeating the discourse against so-called cultural Marxism and, and so on. So like being more, more close to, to actual European far-right conservatives and, and seeing them as, as, uh, as the model. The problem is that many of these European far-right parties are also kind of like pro-Russian. <laughs> and that's creating a, a problem for Ukrainian nationalists, uh, how we can ally with uh, Orban. <laughs> <laughs> or yeah, Salvini. If if they are not not really, if if, if they if they are so friendly to Russia, that, that that's a problem. And one one of the international strategies of Azov was trying to kind of like to push a part of European extreme right scene into more pro-Ukrainian position, and uh, winning them on their on their side and. Partially, they, they, they were successful with this. Uh, however, it doesn't really change uh, the orientation of the most electorally relevant uh, European, European parties. How did Euromaidan lead to the war in Donbass and Russia's seizure of Crimea? You write that the conflict is, quote, predominantly misrepresented as the war with Russia. How, how should we understand Russia's role and how should we understand it as first and foremost a civil conflict? Yeah, uh, the, the, uh, the the timing in understanding of the events is very crucial because when we look at, uh, at which precise moment the violence started in Ukraine, it started not in Donbass, it started not in Crimea, it started on the streets of Kiev and also in Western Ukraine in the last days of Euromaidan revolution, before Putin, Putin sent any of his uh, green men to Crimea, before he sent or supported the pro-Russian irredentist uh, uprising in Donbass. So the story about uh, the war that reduces the war to the interstate conflict just simply starts too late. I don't really understand why why the violence that, that started uh, like specifically on February 18, 2014 in Kiev and which led in the very first days uh, in the very first day uh, the first day and first night to death of uh, from 20 to 30 protesters and uh, up to a dozen of police and with the use of uh, weapons, not simply bricks or Molotov cocktails, which were used before, but actually like shooting guns and formation of the armed groups uh, in, in, in these days and the violent uprising in the Western Ukraine. And the 
that's all was actually perceived by both parts of the conflict, both the government and the opposition, as civil war. This, they were saying this, the civil war is starting in Ukraine. We are just forgetting about this. What we know from the documents and from the interviews, public interviews, that, for example, the, the right sector, the radical nationalist organizations that played an important role in, in the violent escalation in, in, during the Maidan, they had plans for guerrilla war in, in, in Western Ukraine in case Yanukovych would be able to s- suppress the protests in Kiev. Andriy Parubiy, who after Maidan became the speaker of Ukrainian parliament, but had a very interesting history as a leader of, uh, of the youth organization of the Social Nationalist Party of Ukraine that later was rebranded as Svoboda Party. And uh, he was heading the torchlight marches in Hitler Jugend style uniform in the 90s. In, in Lviv, uh, in, in Western Ukraine. So uh, during Euromaidan, he was kind of like more moderate politician, although he has never rejected his far-right uh, background. And uh, he was also uh, kind of like a commander of uh, Maidan vigilantist paramilitary for- formations that were called self-defense. And, and, and as he is saying in, in, in the interviews, he, they, they really had a plan, kind of like a plan B, if Yanukovych defeats us in, in Kyiv, we are moving the center of uprising to Western Ukraine. And in the, in the, in, in, in the last days of Euromaidan, the Western Ukrainian local government, they were proclaiming their autonomy from Kyiv and they were proclaiming that they're not following any orders from the illegitimate government anymore. And so this was the, like, classical, revolutionary situation when the revolutionaries are starting to get control over some sizable part of uh, of the territory of the state uh, getting some at least loosely organized armed units or at least heading towards this and uh, the civil conflict uh, has already counted a quite sizable number of victims and especially on February 20, with uh, the notorious uh, uh, shooting of the protesters at the streets of Kiev, which is still uh, uh, not really uninvestigated, uh, and there is no still no official conclusion. The trial is still going on for eight years about this, and uh, like the most comprehensive study of that conflict done by. Canadian political scientist Ivan Kachinovsky basically claims that this was a false flag operation by some of the opposition groups that were trying to escalate uh, the conflict with massive bloodshed and to leave no uh, f- no space for any compromise with Yanukovych. So after that, he would need either to destroy the uprising with violence. However, he didn't, apparently he didn't get support from the military institutions, particularly from, from, from all of the police. And he, he chose basically to escape from Kyiv instead of this. 
uh, or or Yanukovych is yeah is doing what what he actually done. He was removed. I mean, this is uh, the indispensable part of uh, the violent escalation that followed afterwards because such scale of violence was unprecedented in Ukraine. It was unseen in, in Ukraine since perhaps like late 40s, 50s, when the, the NKVD or KGB was destructing the remnants of uh, the nationalist guerrilla in, in Western Ukraine. Afterwards, there was two consecutive generations of uh, Soviet people, Ukrainians, who haven't seen any massive violence on, on, on the streets. And of course, such unprecedented levels of violence, they, they create polarization within the society and they uh, create the reasons to question uh, the new post-revolutionary government and uh, pushes uh, the at least some of the people in uh, in southern and eastern regions uh, to think about separation from Ukraine, to join some anti-Maidan rallies, which were not that big as pro-Maidan. However, they, they also involved some, some, some kind of like pro-Russian or anti-Maidan segment of Ukrainian politics. The quite significant number of people and which... Uh, uh, in Donetsk and uh, in Lugansk, they were more like, uh, radical. They were starting to assault uh, the uh, governmental buildings. And uh, on April 12, uh, the group of Igor Strelkov, a former Russian FSB officer, comes with arms and starts uh, an armed uprising with the idea that probably Russians would also... Uh, try to uh, implement uh, the Crimean scenario, but for why the part of Ukraine. However, Putin decided differently. Instead of annexing a bigger part, part of Ukraine, he was like covertly supporting this uh, this uprising, which uh, in the end led to the stalemate in Donbass and to the Minsk agreements. So the story behind of this war is much uh, longer. And uh, the narrative about which reduces the war to Russia-Ukraine conflict just simply forgets how it all started. The conflict is often represented as fundamentally about regionally-based identity. But you argue that this identity politics, in reality, surprise, surprise, has a material basis. Notably, the quote, concentration in the southern and eastern parts of Ukraine of the heavy Soviet industry dependent on the markets of Russia and other ex-USSR countries. What is this broader economic geography of Ukraine? How has that shaped the country's political divide? And then how is it that those materially based differences get expressed as a conflict over language, identity, culture? Uh, yeah, it's it's true. There is an economic basis uh, uh, for 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 the conflict. There is even a, like a quantitative economic study uh, that creates a very complicated mathematical model, and which shows that the there were more intense fightings uh, and uh, more higher probability of control of specific uh, settlements in uh, eastern Ukraine. Uh, controlled by the separatists, 
uh, and, and the most important factor for this was not uh, language or identity or ethnicity, uh, the things that are usually discussed. However, the, uh, the, the, the things, for example, as the number of, uh, of people who work in machine building industry, who worked prim- work primarily for Russian and other post-Soviet markets. And, and other uh, heavy industry created there by, uh, by the Soviet Union within the Soviet trade links, and uh, which uh, continued to work primarily for Russia, Belarus, and other former post-Soviet countries, and which were not really... Um, needed and competitive in the European markets. And so the, the, this is a material basis for this divide. Some of the people uh, were thinking not so much about uh, Russia, NATO, language, uh, but whether they would have jobs after the free trade zone with EU would be signed, after the reorientation of Ukraine towards European markets. And we see that this uh, these industries are declining, and, and Donbass is now got into quite severe economic disaster. Not without the role of of, of Russia, of course, but uh, still, of course, the more rural part of Ukraine, which is significantly less urbanized, the western regions, they didn't have the same concerns, and uh, for them. Uh, Europe was not so much even a civilizational choice. Those social groups, which worked primarily in uh, as, as uh, migrant workers in the European Union, they were materially interested in uh, in better relations with the EU, with, in in a visa-free regime, which allows like less bureaucratic way to work in the European Union, although maybe not so legal. The, the civil society, dependent on the money from the Western donors, uh, of course, they were afraid with uh, violent suppression of, of the protests uh, because they just would leave them without their professional careers and the source of support. And But uh, there were other parts of uh, still... Like, like post-Soviet industrial working class, they, they, they had some other concerns. Although it will still be a, a kind of like a, sim- a big simplification to look at this conflict as like workers against petty bourgeoisie and intelligence, because it was not like that. The trade union organizations were marginal in on the both sides of the conflict. Many unorganized workers, they were participating in, 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 on, on the both sides. When, when Maidan turned more violent, the liberal middle class people were less important. More important were the protesters coming from uh, poor small towns in central and western Ukraine and who formed perhaps the important um, social base for. Uh, radical escalation on, on, on the Maidan. These people uh, lived not, not really great lives and uh, they were kind of like more, more aspiring for more radical change, changes and, and, and they've seen uh, like violence as, as, as a possible way to, to, to have revolutionary breakthrough in their lives. So 
because what's necessary is not is it's not really violence. The the left in Ukraine as across much of the post-Soviet world is rather small and marginal, and it's been that way since it first emerged during Perestroika. You write, quote, Overall, the new government's policies have not broken with the trap of dependent development of a capitalist periphery. Sooner or later, the search for a radically alternative project of national development will be back on the agenda. Yet, the new left, as it is now, will hardly be able to respond to this demand with in-depth analysis and serious strategic proposals. The new left activists remain in the comfort zone of convenient topics of specific groups of the active public, urban initiatives, feminists, environmentalists, some labor unions. This is because they remain politically, financially, intellectually, and affectively dependent on the marginal left liberal segment of Ukraine's civil society. Moreover, uncritical acceptance of the movementist ideology, particularly among contemporary liberal and libertarian left, is counterproductive for the Ukrainian new left. Why has the new left been unable or unwilling to connect the dots between particular struggles into a big-picture politics for Ukraine as a whole? And then what would that big-picture politics for Ukraine as a whole look like, and where might it find a social base? Uh, The reason why... uh, You, you actually said that the post-Soviet left was generally marginal. It really depends on how we see uh, the left. And uh, there is a tendency to see the left in very narrow terms as uh, something that would be more or less similar to to, to, to the Western progressive left liberal uh, circles. And and in the West, it's not simply circles. It's actually like popular parties, movements, uh, the, 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 that side of politics that uh, do- doesn't really exist in post-Soviet countries. And and one of the reasons is that we are trying to look uh, and to find something something similar. And there are people who try to simulate to to kind of like to play into into the local one, like Jeremy Corbyn's. Uh, Bernie Sanders and other like, great figures, they, they're inspirational, of course, in post-Soviet countries. But the question is to which extent we really can uh, implement the same strategies, the same rhetoric, the same organizational structures, and would, would it be actually productive in our societies or would it only marginalize the new left even more? I mean, if we are not looking in this narrow perspective, uh, the left parties that were like claiming to be the left parties and were call, calling themselves socialists, communists, were not really marginal. In, specifically in Ukraine, uh, in the 1990s, the left parties, the Communist Party of Ukraine, the Socialist Party of Ukraine, Progressive Socialist Party of Ukraine, although that party really moved in the course of the events to kind of like Russian nationalist, civilizationist, conservative position. Nevertheless, the left parties in the 90s, they were the very important political opposition. They were mobilizers of significant uh, social economic protests. They controlled a sizable portion of Ukrainian parliament. They were uh, uh, capable to elect a left-wing speaker of Ukrainian parliament, Alexander Moroz, who was one of the primary opposition figures 
to the policies of uh, of the 1990s Ukrainian presidents, uh, Leonid Kravchuk and uh, Leonid Kuchma. And in, in 1999, Kuchma was competing primarily with the communist candidate Petro Simonenko. And in the second round, Simonenko lost to Kuchma. However, he lost with 37% of the votes. So the Communist Party was one of the most popular party in, in until Euromaidan and until 2002, it was the pop, most popular party in Ukraine. And so uh, disaffected with this uh, and disappointed with the course of the post-Soviet collapse, many people very quickly turned back to the communists and they voted for them as a... Not, 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 not primarily for as, as for a vision of some brighter future. However, at least for some uh, break to collapsing, disintegrating tendencies they were experiencing around them. So this part of uh, of of the left, with origins in uh, in the communist party of the Soviet Union, with basically like genetic continuation from the Bolshevik party, of course, very much transformed, very much degraded. These people, of course, not looking like Lenin or Trotsky, anymore, very far from them. Unfortunately, very um, kind of like susceptible to various like conservative discourses. And this, this has always been a point of... Uh, New left criticism against that. That look, you are allowing some some racist statements in your in your newspapers. Something about American blacks. Uh, you are homophobic. Uh, not not really kind of like campaigning on the homophobic initiatives, but uh, you could see that. Not really taking the modern understanding about the gender relations. And are you uh, even any part of left anymore? But at the same time, they were clearly against the neoliberal policies. They were for the primacy of the state property. They were probably not seeing the ideal in in in, in the communist states. However, they 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 they, they uh, were pointing to China, particularly. Look, China has not disintegrated and it is led by the communist party and so the communists may be actually quite successful in uh, in, in 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 ruling a big country and of course the, like the, the new left was saying that, that it's just the same capitalism and, and so on and so forth and western left probably know all these discussions very well but what's probably even more important that these parties they were not ideal, however, kind of like organic representatives of some large group within uh, Ukrainian and larger post-Soviet societies. And we see now, particularly, that they uh, probably are not that... It's, it's not probably completely done with them. We've seen that the Communist Party of Russian Federation turned into kind of like the, the, the most important opposition party in the recent elections in Russia. Uh, where even even uh, liberal, like anti-communist liberal circles, they were campaigning for the communist candidates because they were the, the most realistic alternative to the Putin's party candidates at the elections. So whatever we think about how nationalist, how conservative, how compromised and corrupt uh, 
the post-Soviet communists, uh, at, at some moment we see that <laughs> there is actually some, some, some real political need in those uh, degraded structures. So th- this, this part of, uh, of the left politics was primarily repressed after the Euromaidan. The government uh, and the parliament, they voted for the so-called decommunization laws, which not exactly banned uh, a communist ideology. They don't say like this. However, they banned so-called propaganda of a criminal totalitarian regime, which they mean the, the Soviet Union, and they, uh, they banned the use of Soviet symbols, the, the naming of the streets and cities uh, after the Soviet officials. And there was a big campaign of renaming of the, of the streets, and it's, 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 it's a big story to, 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 to tell. And uh, the Romanian monuments to Lenin and other Soviet leaders were removed during the course of 2014-2015, actually without that much of uh, popular support. And the decommunization laws were not so much uh, demanded by Ukrainian public. In the polls, they were saying that they were not actually supporting them. Uh, but at the same time, they were not ready to defend the Communist Party. And that, that's, uh, that's, that's uh, another problem and another result of the weakness of this segment of the civil society. So the, the Communists were not allowed to participate in the elections. Uh, they uh, minimized the activity to, to very, very limited level and uh, because of quite quite rational reasons the, 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 the it's not uh, it's not something unusual to to get on the trial for saying something pro-soviet in the social networks it's not it's not of course it's systematic monitoring of what people say and what kind of like t-shirts they uh, they, they they wear but there are like real cases when 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 when, when people for wearing a, a t-shirt with a soviet national emblem they got into trial or for like for writing or on on in social networks something like lenin lives lenin will live uh, some young guy in Lviv uh, gets probationary term uh, or very uh, the most recent probably extremely ridiculous uh, case when some guy in a provincial town put a like in a social network under a picture with some Soviet symbols and uh, slogan something like we are the one people referring to that Putin's uh, agenda uh, and uh, security service found him and claimed that he with this with his like he distributed it among his all his all of his friends something like 160 <laughs> he had and so that, that was a distribution of uh, forbidden propaganda he got he, he was fined because he actually he uh, yeah, he he, he 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 agreed that he 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 was uh, he he pleaded guilty that yes he he, he did uh, some wrong thing and so uh, he was punished not so severe as he as in the case as he, if he would uh, stay on the 
stay on the course. He said that he didn't he didn't know that this was a punishable crime to like some <laughs> Soviet symbols in the social networks. These are like the most ridiculous, extraordinary cases, but but they happen. Uh, and uh, and and the new left, um, it's it's a completely different story. It's um, it's a story of of not of uh, of being more connected to a liberal part of uh, nationalist liberal civil society of imitating the western discourses uh, symbols uh, agenda and trying to bring that to ukraine with uh, uh, with 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 analysis that i think that pro just falls that ukraine follows about the same uh, way of neoliberal transformation and that we, 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 we uh, instead of the analyzing the specifics uh, of past uh, variety of, of post-Soviet conflicts, uh, we, we must simply uh, translate and try to implement the, the analysis of uh, the neoliberal uh, reforms and, and their consequences in the West and in, in, for the, uh, for the post-Soviet societies. So the, this part of the left remained, uh, they, they were not, not, not that much present. They, they were marginal before Maidan, but after Maidan, because they, 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 they were split between supporters of, uh, Maidan and then Ukraine in, in the war and, uh, anti-Maidan and then, uh, the separatist republics on the other side of the war and squeezing middle, non-campist uh, people, uh, they become even more marginalized and, of course, also a target of the far-right attacks of the slandering of put, putting uh, them into indiscriminate pro-Russian camp for criticizing the the nationalist narratives about the war and uh, about the recent events. And so those these marginal circles, they, they are failing to find the significant social groups that they would be able to become kind of like uh, organic representatives. And uh, at the same time, they, they are failing to see that uh, uh, kind of like a new generation coming, maybe a third generation of the post-Soviet, new left. The first one was politicized during perestroika. The second one uh, was politicized during this uh, starting Maidan revolutions in in 2000s and uh, activization of the societies, emergence of the the new movements, not of the same scale as in the West, however, around more or less similar problems. And now, now the third generation that... Uh, is emerging in the period of the intensified inter-imperialist struggle that uh, feels uh, what what we've seen in the last 30 years was, was basically like a degradation, that nothing new has emerged in, on, on the ruins of the Soviet state. And what this, the, the, the Soviet actually may, may show that some of the progressive things that we've lost and that may still inspire, of course, not to dumply imitate, however, to inspire as an alternative that uh, we, that, like 
the generation of our parents, at least, that were part of and uh, may be a basis of at least of some oppositional identity. And it's it's not simply an identity. It's uh, in Ukraine this this part of of of, uh, of the left politics is practically non-existent. However, in Russia and in, even in Belarus, there are like dozens of uh, Marxist circles that are reading Marx, that are reading Lenin, uh, that are trying to analyze the current events uh, through Marxist perspectives. That are doing kind of uh, quite uh, significantly present radical left propaganda in social networks. Uh, YouTube became a very important um, uh, way of uh, disseminating radical left views. Some of the most popular YouTube channels of Russian left uh, are gathering hundreds of thousands of viewers. And this is quite significant. So, so there is a kind of like a broad uh, part of the society that, that feels oppositional to to the government, that feels also oppositional to the post-Soviet civil societies, and is looking for uh, for more radical alternatives. And whether they would develop into something bigger, it's yeah, of course, it's. Uh, uh, it's a matter of the future discussions. However, this, this the, the presence of uh, of some organic basis of the for the left politics in post-Soviet societies is is, is very underestimated, and uh, it's important that we uh, should stop looking at the post-Soviet left from very narrow uh, Western perspective, looking for the similar people like us, and not seeing the people. who who may be actually materially interested and uh, ideologically sympathetic to many of the very basic uh, left ideas and uh, and the fundamentals of the left politics. Well, Vladimir Ischenko, thank you very much. Thank you. Vladimir Ischenko is a research associate at the Institute of East European Studies at the Free University in Berlin. His research focuses on protests and social movements, revolutions, radical right and left politics, nationalism, and civil society. His work has been published in Post-Soviet Affairs, Globalizations, New Left Review, The Guardian, and Jacobin, and he is working on a collective book manuscript, The Maidan Uprising, Mobilization, Radicalization, and Revolution in Ukraine, 2013 to 2014. Thank you for listening to The Dig from Jacobin Magazine. As Marx once said after noting that, but unheroic though bourgeois society is, it nevertheless needed heroism, sacrifice, terror, civil war, and national wars to bring it into being. While other podcasts have only interpreted the world in various ways, our point is to change it. We're posting new episodes every week. The Dig was produced by Alex Lewis and recorded at WBRU in Providence. Music by Jeffrey Brodsky. Our communications coordinators are Tamuz Frankel and Gemma Sack. 
Our senior advisor is Theo Real Francos. Check out our vast archives at thedigradio.com. Follow us on Twitter at The Dig Radio, and please do find us wherever you get podcasts and subscribe. If it's on iTunes, please also leave us a review. Those reviews help introduce us to new listeners. But what really does that is you telling your friends about the podcast. Please do make propaganda for us. And please, last but by no means least, find us at patreon.com slash the dig and make a monthly contribution to keep this operation up and running strong. Even a few bucks is huge. Mm-hmm.